Let's open our Bibles tonight to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I want to deal with a passage of Scripture that has everything to do with the resurrection, though it's not the resurrection isn't specifically mentioned in our passage for tonight. What I want to talk about is how do you find an anchor for your soul? Back uh, in, a, in a previous part of my life, I enjoyed scuba diving. It was one of my hobbies. And um, we, my wife and I would go on, on vacation and we would go scuba diving. A lot of times we would go to Cozumel and that was our favorite place to dive. If you dive in Cozumel, what you do is you get off the boat and you go down to sort of a sandy level and you, you drift dive. The current pushes you along and the, and the boat just kind of drifts along with you so that when you run out of air and you come up, you come up close to the boat. Kind of makes sense. Well, we went on one particular dive, and uh, the word did not get to the boat captain that it was not a drift dive. So we get off the boat, and we submerge, and we go under and play around in these swim-throughs, which are kind of caves, but you can see all the way through them. And we saw some cool things, saw some fish, saw an eel, saw a sea turtle, and just it was, it was an incredible dive. But we were kind of in the same spot. However, when we came back up, the captain had not anchored the boat, he had drifted. Now, there is nothing quite as terrifying as coming up somewhere in the ocean and not finding your boat, just to be honest with you. That is a frightening thing to happen. However, there were other boats in the area, and one of them radioed to our boat, and he quickly came back and got us. Every one of us needs an anchor. An anchor is what holds you in place. And we need anchors for our soul as much as a boat needs an anchor. There are some reasons that you need an anchor. First of all, you need an anchor because hard days are going to come. There are going to be times in your life when difficult moments are going to arise. And for most of us, this past year has just plain been hard. It's just been hard. I mean, there's been the, the COVID-19 virus, and we've been concerned about our health, and there's been political upheaval, and there's been, uh, there's been uh, racial tension in our country, uh, economic distress, people worried about are they going to have a job? If they have a job, uh, what is it going to pay? And I mean, there's just been all kinds of, uh, of things that have caused us to feel like that we're in uncertain, uncharted waters, and we need some anchors to hang on to. The other reason that you need an anchor is because hearts tend to drift. Even those of you who would say, you know what, I am a Christian. I came here tonight to celebrate the resurrection because I fully believe in Jesus. Let me say something to you. Hearts tend to drift. Without careful, careful maintenance, without dil diligent discipline, your heart will just begin to drift away from the Lord. And we need some anchors to hold us in place when that happens. This year has been a year of anxiety and anger for a lot of people. And whether for you, you have heightened anxiety or you just, you're just mad about things. You know, you're mad because you have to wear a mask. You're mad because something's not open. You're mad because of social distancing. Some people are just mad about everything. But if you're, if you're anxious or you're angry, you need an anchor. No matter who you are, you need some anchors. And tonight, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that Jesus speaks to his disciples in John chapter 14, and it's in the upper room. Now, let me give you the, sort of the lay of the land here. Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to celebrate the Passover together on that Thursday night. So the disciples come together, and uh, Jesus takes the Passover meal. He gives two of the elements of that meal new and uh, expanded meaning. He takes a piece of unleavened bread and said, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you. 
And he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood, which is about to be poured out for you. Now, that would have alarmed the disciples when they heard those two words. Jesus tells them he's about to die. Judas gets up and he slips out of this meeting and he goes to betray Jesus. Jesus then looks at the rest of the disciples and he says, you know, um, one of you is going to betray me and, and, and it's one of you that's been sitting here at the table with me. Peter says, I don't care what happens. I will never deny you. Not going to happen, Jesus. Let me say something to you. If Jesus were to ever tell you something directly, just believe him, okay? It's going to happen. Don't argue with Jesus about stuff because we know that Peter does exactly that very thing. But just after that, Jesus begins to teach. It is the last teaching that Jesus will do for his disciples while he's in his earthly ministry. It's John chapter 14, 15, 16, and into chapter 17 when he, when he prays with his disciples before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray and then be arrested. He'll be put on trial. He'll be crucified the next day. And on that Easter Sunday morning, he is risen from the dead. But on that night, he began to teach his disciples. And I believe he lays out for us some anchors for our souls. And I want you to look at these with me. First of all, look at John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. The first thing that Jesus calls us to anchor our hearts in is belief in him. First of all, I would challenge you to believe that God is real. Sim it's a simple statement, I realize that. And for many of you, you well, Bob, we're here at church. Of course we believe that God is real. Well, I don't misunderstand. Let me help you with this. I don't want to misunderstand two things. First of all, some of you might have come to church or you might be at our West Campus or the church at Shepherd, and you might be there because somebody invited you. And you're not sure if this Christianity thing is the real deal or not. Others of you may be walking through a terrible trial in your life and you've just gotten to the place where your faith has been rattled and you're like, I don't know if any of this stuff is real or not. Jesus says, I want you to believe that God is real. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. That word believe is important. It doesn't just mean to accept something as a fact. It doesn't mean just to believe that something is real. But it means to accept it as, as a conviction. To, to accept not just that it's real, but it's, it's reliable. It, it's the trust that you have when you sit down in a chair and you trust that that chair is going to hold you up and not collapse. It's the trust that you have when you walk into a room and you flip on a light switch. You trust that the lights are going to come. It's the trust that you have that when you get on an airplane that it's going to give you, get you safely to the right destination and safely to that right destination. It's not just that, it's, that an airplane is real, but it's reliable. When Jesus says, I want you to believe in me, he's, he's not just saying, I want you to believe I'm real. He's saying, I want you to believe that I am reliable. Now, what about this whole question about is Jesus real? I think it's a fair question for people to ask. I am a, a, a lover of history. I like history. Some of you don't. But I, I've read books about George Washington, and I've read books about Julius Caesar, and I've read about Joan of Arc, and I, 
I never met any of those people. I don't, there's, no, there's no video footage of those people. They're, they're not even photographs of those people. So how do I know that they are real? Well, because I read about them from reliable sources. And what you need to understand is that there are some reliable sources from ancient history, just like there are reliable sources from more modern history. Let me give you some examples. Some men named Flavius Josephus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, and Tacitus. Those were four historians of Rome. And those four men wrote about ancient history. Now, we have from them stories about uh, the assassination of Julius Caesar. We have from them stories about the Roman wars and the Roman Empire. But we also have from them that they actually confirmed that a man named Jesus lived. All four of them note that. They say not only did he live, but many miracles were attributed to him. And they also note that he was crucified by the Romans. They also, all four of them, tell of the fact that his followers said he was resurrected. Now, these historians were not Christians. They weren't followers of Jesus. So they wouldn't necessarily say the resurrection was true, but here's what they did say. They did say that his followers said the resurrection was true. You see, you can actually substantiate from history that Jesus was a real person. None of them deny that. One of the best books I've ever read on this is a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He cites 12 ancient sources that mention Jesus as a real person. You say, okay, Bob, I'm convinced. Jesus is a real person. But does that really make him the son of God? Well, not only is Jesus real, but Jesus is reliable. You see, one of the things that Jesus says in this passage that we're working our way through tonight is he, he answers a question. In verse 8 of this passage, one of his disciples named Philip speaks to him. And I mean, Jesus has been teaching them for three and a half years. This is the night when Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified tomorrow. So Philip's been with Jesus for a long time, probably about three years. And he says, okay, Lord, would you just show us the Father? I mean, we, we believe in you, Jesus. We, we believe in who you are. Would you just show us the Father? And here's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not now come to me to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, here's what Jesus was saying. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen God. Jesus was not claiming to be a prophet in that verse. My Muslim neighbor believes he's a prophet. Jesus was not claiming to be a good teacher in that verse. Our Jewish friends believe he's a good teacher. Jesus was saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Jesus was claiming for himself the truth that he is God in human flesh. Now that's where the dividing line comes. There's a great author named C.S. Lewis. He wrote some books called The Chronicles of Narnia and they've been made into movies. And He was a scholar at Oxford University. And uh, early in his life, he was an atheist, didn't believe there was a God. But then he began to study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And he came to a conclusion about Jesus. It's called Lewis, Lewis's triad. That a man who said the things that Jesus of Nazareth said is one of three things. Because just take the verse we just read. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you're looking at God. That's what Jesus said. So he's one of three things. He is either a liar. That's a possibility. He's a crazy man. He's a lunatic. Or he is Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. So we got it narrowed down to three things. Let me say this. What you can't say is, oh, he's a good teacher. No. A good teacher wouldn't say things like that if he couldn't back it up. But Jesus could back it up. Because here is a man who walked on water. The water he created. Here is a man who could speak to a storm and all of a sudden it would still and become a nice sunny day. Jesus did things that only God could do. And the crowning achievement of all of his works happened on, a, on an Easter Sunday morning in a tomb outside of Jerusalem when a stone was rolled away and a man who had been dead for three days came out of that tomb. Jesus did things only God could do. In John chapter 14, 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Just look at what I do. Jesus is real and Jesus is reliable. Now, that's the first anchor for your soul. Let me tell you why I, I wanted to insert this in, in my Easter sermon as much as anything else. There are some of you who are younger and you're going to go into classrooms. Now, there's some good Christian teachers, and I'm not saying every teacher is like this. But there, especially on university campuses, there are instructors and professors who delight in destroying the faith of young people. They, uh, they take it as their personal mission. I want you to know something. Jesus is no myth. He's real. And Jesus is no mere man. He is God in human flesh. That is an anchor for your soul. Second, believe that heaven is home. Believe that heaven is home. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said the Father has a great big house. If you look at that passage, what he's saying is the Father has a great big house. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a room for you, for each one of you in the Father's great big house. In the ancient world, when a son would take a wife, what he would do is he, he would begin a construction project. It actually would take place in a period of time between what was called betrothal and the wedding. Remember from the Christmas story how that Jesus or Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, are uh, they're betrothed to be married. They're not yet married, they're betrothed. They're, they're promised to one another. It's more than engagement, but it's not quite married yet. And so during the betrothal until the actual wedding, what would happen is the, the, the groom 
would go to his father's house. And in most cases, what he would do is he would add a room onto the father's house. So that when the wedding day came, he could go and get his bride and take her to his father's house for them to live in that room. Now, in some cases where people were very, very rich, they might build another house. But for most people, that's what happened. And when Jesus tells this story, that's the picture that's in his disciples' mind. They're seeing a Jewish wedding ceremony, the betrothal period. And during that period, the bridegroom is away from the bride doing a construction project. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was sent into this world, he was sent into the home of a carpenter, somebody who builds things. He says, my father has a great big house and in my father's house, there are many rooms. Last summer, my wife and daughter and I took a trip and we went to the great Smoky Mountains and went to the east and visited my family in Tennessee and then we saw some great things. And I took my wife and daughter to a place um, that some of you have been to called the Biltmore Estate. The Biltmore Estate is the largest residence ever built in America. 175 bedrooms. They're, they're like 43 bathrooms. My thought was, who's going to clean this thing? You know, that, that, that's the only deal about that, right? It has like 175,000 square feet. But that pales in comparison to the largest house in the world. The largest house in the world has over 2 million square feet. It belongs to the Sultan of Brunei. And it has 1,788 rooms and over 250 bathrooms. Jesus says, my father's house, my father's got a house that's going bigger than all those. My father has a house that has room for everyone who will believe. Everyone who will believe has a room in the father's house. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, here's the question. We were walking through the Biltmore house, and it's interesting, and it's, it's pretty fascinating to see some of the things that were put into that house. It was built in the early 1900s, and so there was no air conditioning, but it's built in such a way that if you throw open certain doors and windows, the, the breeze comes through on that mountaintop, and it keeps it really comfortable and cool in the house, even in the heat of summer. It's got a lot of neat gadgets about it, but they told a story to us about the family that lived there, about the Vanderbilt family. And Mr. Vanderbilt, who built that particular house, actually died as a fairly young man. As a, he, was about, he was in his 40s when he died. And he had one daughter. And that one daughter, Cornelia, uh, had grown up there at, in the Biltmore Estate. But soon after her father died, she went off to school and she never came back. She never set foot in Biltmore again. Probably because of the heartache, that that was where memories were made for her. And I began to think about that. What makes a house a home? What makes a house a home? I'll tell you what it is. It's not furniture. It's sure not square footage. It, it, it's not 
all of the nice things that you can put in it. What makes a house a home is who lives there. It's who's there with you, right? That's what makes a house a home. My wife and daughter and I, we could have home anywhere. That, that, that building on the west side of town, that's just a house. Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 3, says this. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He says, heaven's going to be your home because I'm going to be there. God has prepared a place for us that is beyond your imagination. It is beyond our wildest imagination. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, However it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I want to tell you why I bring this up. Why talk about this at Easter? Let me, let me tell you something. Some of us have tried our best to make heaven on earth. Some of us have tried our best to create this utopia here on earth with no pain and no problems. And we're trying to create something here on earth that's just perfect for us. And it's never going to happen. And if this past year has proved anything to us, this world can blow up at any moment. Our dreams can be shattered in a heartbeat. This world is not our home. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a much better home. As a matter of fact, the Bible, the Apostle Paul, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says that even this earthly body, this body is a tent. Now, a tent is a temporary dwelling. Tent's okay for a couple of nights out in the woods, but let's go home and take a hot shower, okay? Some of you in the military, you've lived in a tent longer than that, maybe a year or two, but it's still temporary. You're wanting to go home. Because home isn't a tent. Home is permanent. Home is who's there. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, we are confident, I say, and would pr prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I just wish you'd allow that to be an anchor for your soul. That this world is not our home. And with all of the difficulties and with all of the problems and all the anxiety and all the fears that we, we have in this world, what we need to remember is we were never intended for this world. We were intended for another. Our hearts are never going to be at home here because our home is somewhere else. Our home is heaven. Third, believe. That spiritual power is mine. Now, this isn't our home, but I'm going to tell you something. I need an anchor to help me just get through tomorrow. I need an anchor to get through the next time a doctor tells me we need to run some more tests. I need an anchor to deal with financial situations. I need an anchor to deal with my soon coming teenage years of my daughter. I need something to hang on to here. Okay, Bob, that's great. It's great. Jesus is real and heaven is home and I'm all for both those things, but I got problems today. Let me help you with that. A little bit farther in the passage, Jesus speaks to the disciples. Listen to what he said in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, 
That will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power to do great things, even greater things than I've done in my earthly ministry. What in the world was Jesus talking about? What, what, kind of, what kind of power source was that? For Jesus to say, you'll do the works that I've done, and you'll do even greater works than that. Now, how could I possibly do greater works than Jesus? How could that possibly be the case? Well, here's how that would work. He's not saying that uh, you're going to be able to walk across your swimming pool and turn water into wine this summer, okay? That's, that's not the point. What he is saying is this, that when Jesus ascended to be back with the Father, that's what he tells, tells us in that verse, I'm going back to the Father. What he did in his place was he sent his spirit to live in every single one of us. Every single one of us who would believe receives the power of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's power. I read the story this week about the guy who currently holds the title of strongest man in the world. He's a Russian guy named Olesi Novikov. He deadlifted, deadlifted 1,185 pounds. That's some strength right there. That's some power. I mean, I just do, all I do is hurt my back if I even tried to move the bar or something. You know, I mean, that, that's not working for me. That is power, but let me tell you something. There is a mightier power than that. There is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it works in the heart of every single believer. You need to believe that spiritual power is available to you. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John writes, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's an anchor for you to hang on to. You need to hang on to the fact that when you are, that when you are dealing with hard circumstances, some of you students are dealing with, with difficult circumstances at school. You deal with it every day. You deal with people who are anti-God. Some of our college students come to me and tell me stories about the stuff that they deal with, and they deal with people who are just absolutely anti-Christian in their, in their life. You're dealing, some of you are dealing with difficult issues, things that, that are hard to walk through, health problems and financial problems. And what you need to remember is that you have an anchor and that anchor is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that rolled away that stone on the first Easter Sunday morning, the same power that brought life back into the body of Jesus is available to you in this moment. He is available to you, and he is the Spirit of God. You see, I want you to leave here saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus is real, and he's reliable, that he is God. He claimed to be God, and that is exactly who he is. I want you to leave here hanging on to something, that this world is not your home. If you're a follower of Jesus, heaven is your home. There's something a whole lot better than this world. There's something a whole lot better. And I want you to believe that to make it through every single day, Jesus cares about you so much that he came 
that he sent his spirit to come and live in you and to give you the power to make it through every single day. That's why the resurrection matters. The resurrection validates who Jesus is. If he had made all those claims and stayed in the grave, he's just a martyr. He's just another religious teacher who died. But Jesus came out of that grave. The resurrection matters. The resurrection matters because he conquered death and he gave us a doorway to eternity. Death is no longer a dead end. Death is a doorway to heaven for the believer. The resurrection matters because that's how spiritual power is available to you and to me. Now, Jesus made a claim here that I want to talk about for just a second. And that is, in verse 14, he said, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, that, that, that promise has confounded a few people. As a matter of fact, some people really, I think they misread it. Because what they hear Jesus saying in that verse is not what I read, but they hear this. If you ask me anything, I will do it. That's not what Jesus said. That turns Jesus into a genie in a bottle. And you just rub on it just right and you get your wishes. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name for my glory to advance my kingdom, that's what he means by in my name. It's not, it's not a blank check for you to get whatever you want. It's for Jesus to do whatever he wants in your life and through you. And some of you have some prayers that you could pray right now. You could say, you know what, I I could pray that. Lord, for your glory, do this in my life. And that's a perfectly legitimate prayer to pray. But some of you are sitting here, you're going, Bob, I, I don't know, that prayer thing never works out for me. It just doesn't work out for me. Well, let me tell you about a prayer that God says yes to every time an honest heart prays it. He's never turned anyone away. As a matter of fact, the Bible says of this prayer that God says yes to it every single time, every single time, that an honest heart prays a prayer like this. And it's a prayer that goes something like this. Dear God, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments and I have done things that are wrong. I have sinned. But I believe that Jesus died on a cross in my place to pay for my sins. And I believe that on that first Easter, he came out of the grave and he's alive today. So Jesus, as best I know how, I turn from my sin and repentance and I totally trust that you are who you said you were. And I trust you for all eternity to make heaven my home. Come into my life, Jesus. I give it to you. I give you my life. And I ask you to save me, forgive me, and give me a home in heaven someday. There are no magic words. But if you could pray a prayer like that, I will guarantee you that God will hear it. And I will guarantee you that he has never turned anyone away who prayed a prayer like that. Here's what the Bible says. 
for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can become a follower of Jesus tonight. We're going to give you that opportunity. In just a moment, the band's going to come back up here and we're going to sing one more song. Some of our pastors on staff are going to be right across the front. And if you'd like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity. If you prayed a prayer like that or you want to pray a prayer like that, we want to help you. Some of you say, you know what, Bob, I have a few more questions to ask. Great. Questions are welcome here. We love questions. So you come forward. We'll try to answer your questions. We'll lead you to faith in Christ. If that's what you want, you come on. But what I'm going to do first is pray for us, and then our band's going to come. We're going to, we're going to uh, after we pray, we're going to stand up. We're going to sing one song of worship tonight. And if you want to receive Jesus, you come. Father, we ask you now to move among us. Lord, our heart's desire is that you would truly be the anchor for our souls. Some of us have feel, felt like we've been pushed and shoved and tossed and turned this year. God, grant us an anchor for our souls. I pray for those in this room who've never trusted Jesus, that tonight would be their night to totally trust him and to give their life to him. In Jesus' name, amen.